0: Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times, I'm Sean McKenna.
1: You, you. The mode is on. The uh,
0: you are listening to the launch of an H-2A rocket back in September from Tanegashima Space Center on Tanegashima Island in Kagoshima Prefecture. That's an island very close to Yakushima a popular destination for travelers. The rocket was carrying an X-ray telescope called the X-ray Imaging and Spectroscopy Mission, or CRISM, so that's spelled out X-R-I-S-M for short, and a lightweight lunar lander called the Smart Lander for Investigating Moon. They're calling it SLIM for short. CRISM was put into orbit around Earth 13 minutes after launch. And Slim went on a four-month journey that eventually took it to the moon, where it soft-landed successfully and gave Japan the distinction of being the fifth country in the world to land a craft on the moon after the United States, the former Soviet Union, China, and India. On today's show, we will talk to Japan Times science writer Tomoko Otake about the lunar landing, as well as Gabriel Dominguez, who will place the achievement in a broader geopolitical context. But first, watching it all go down in the early hours of January 20th was news editor Joel Tansey, who's going to tell us what it was like covering the night of the slim landing. Hey Joel, so just how late did you have to stay up the night of the lunar landing?
2: You can imagine that uh, I didn't have a whole lot of competition for getting this uh, duty. (laughs) I think I ended up going to bed around 4.30 a.m. wow! uh, I think coverage might have wrapped around four, but I was quite kind of jazzed up with the excitement of the evening. So it took me a little bit more time to wind down.
0: Yeah, I bet. Well, why don't you start by telling us what the press conference was like to announce this historical achievement of Japan being the fifth country to land a craft on the moon? Like, when did it actually start?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'll I'll take you back to the, the very beginning. You know, at uh, about eleven p.m., the mm-hmm. the broadcast went live. And for sports fans out there, I think you would call this the pregame show. And right. they kind of brought in <laughs> some various experts and you know people involved with uh, various parts of the lander and some of the equipment on board. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all really well done. It was in Japanese, of course, but they had a an English translation, a live uh, live interpretation, and uh, I have to say, they just—it was a—it was a great broadcast because it really, you know, it was 11 p.m. on a Friday, getting pretty getting pretty tired by, by that point already, and uh, yeah, kind of got me excited for the mission.
0: What was it like? Was it like a YouTube channel or?
2: Yeah, so they live streamed it on on YouTube, mm-hmm. and it was, I believe, produced by by JAXA itself, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency.
0: Okay, where were they streaming from?
2: Uh, they were at their, uh, campus in Sagamihara in Kanagawa prefecture, right, just, okay. uh, not far outside of Tokyo. Gotcha. You know, it was interesting, uh, everyone watching on, on YouTube and of course there was a live chat going on and there was, uh, more than a couple mentions of Eminem.
0: Right. Because the lunar lander, the acronym is slim.
2: Right. Slim shady. <laughs> yeah, um, very, very smart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People really, uh, made that nice connection there. Um, <laughs> And the host for the evening was a, a researcher named Shin Toriyumi. Okay. And uh, of course that was, you know, as I mentioned, all in Japanese. The translation was provided by Elizabeth Tasker. Um, who actually wrote something in the Japan Times for us back in December in the kind of the build up towards this mission. Okay. And uh, yeah, she was just fantastic. Really uh, really kind of set the tone for you know what was an exciting evening for, um, for folks watching at home. Right. So Toriyumi... He sat on a, an orange couch. It was quite distinctive if you were watching the, the stream. It was just kind of an uh, interesting color. And uh, it really just kind of looked like he was hanging out in somebody's basement and uh, surrounded by, you know, lots of uh, models and posters of the moon. And again, the, the whole thing really, it felt like the pregame show for the Super Bowl. And uh, I would say that the, the game actually started at midnight.
0: Okay. So what kind of things did uh, Toriumi talk about?
2: So I guess it was, I never got the chance to attend space camp, although I kind of wish I had, you know, in retrospect. <laughs> but um, it was almost like being at some sort of uh, event like that where, you know, he interviewed a lot of other researchers involved in the space program. And uh, one of the probes that uh, Slim was releasing was made in coordination with Tomy. Okay. And that's the, uh, people might know that as a very famous toy company. And uh, so we interviewed, uh, you know, someone from the company who was involved in that.
0: So when the actual landing took place, what did you see? Did you actually see it land?
2: Right. So uh, unfortunately, there wasn't a uh, a live video being fed back to Earth for us to watch. Um, But what they did present to us was uh, a lot of data, uh, a lot of it, uh, you know, certainly didn't make sense to myself as kind of just a you know an armchair person sitting at home yeah. and then uh, an
0: armchair cosmonaut
2: armchair cosmonaut <laughs> i like that and uh there was a, also a graphic of the the lander kind of on its on its way to the moon so you could kind of see where where it was in proximity to the lunar surface okay yeah it was 20 minutes of that and it was a uh, there wasn't a lot of narration going on during that time but i think there was a lot of tension. This was called the uh, 20 minutes of terror by the mission personnel. And that's because this is the time where things can go wrong. Okay. A lot of preparation went into the mission. So this is uh, this is gut check time. Yeah. So then, you know, around 1220, Jackson said the Slim had appeared to land on the moon, which is, you know, a monumental achievement in itself Mm. for Japan, only the fifth country to do that. But they couldn't quite confirm it. It was a, a bit unusual. Uh, at that point where it appeared it landed on the moon but we can't quite confirm that and around twelve thirty, they they said we were going to um get back to you when we've confirmed the status of the lander
0: right it does sound tense and like really complicated i mean when you you start to think about what they're actually trying to do they're they're landing something that's like on the moon
2: yeah i mean i think we might even just kind of like Take it for granted a little bit here in twenty twenty four. But this is, you know, this is very this is this is actually rocket science, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) And and what Japan was trying to do was also unique in the fact that it was trying to achieve what's called a a pinpoint landing. Okay. Um so that is landing within one hundred meters of a target. And that's extremely complicated, as you might imagine. And what typical missions try for is tens of kilometers. Oh, you know this. This was really the groundbreaking part of the mission, and they also, of course, were trying to achieve a soft landing so that the, the lander could be useful once it arrived on the moon.
0: Right. That's opposed to a hard landing.
2: As opposed to a hard landing, yeah, which is uh, sometimes intentional. Um, you know, they they might want a hard landing to to kick up debris that can then be collected.
0: Okay, so something will crash or into the moon, and like that kicks up the debris.
2: Yeah, a hard landing is is kind of what it sounds like. It would would be a lot more violent and um, it would kick up debris so that other spacecraft can pick up that debris for for analysis. Hmm. Um, But Japan was trying for a a soft landing and a pinpoint soft landing at that. So that was the main goal of this mission was to, to achieve that.
0: Right. So landing the spacecraft so close is a difficult achievement. When did you actually... Find out that they did it,
2: right? So, as I said, uh, you know, from twelve twenty, there was that time where they were trying to confirm. There was a lot of coffees and uh, a lot of waiting around. It, it was a bit like being on hold with your mobile phone carrier. Right. Every once in a while, they would come back, you know, and say, "You know, we're still trying to confirm." And
0: we appreciate then, your reporting.
2: Right? Exactly. <laughs> Please and, stay online. Uh, and the, the the music was actually it was kind of quite nice. Actually, it was a bit getting a, almost disappointed when it ended. But um, so then around two thirty is when they they kind of come back and wow. they they prepare for the the actual press conference, and uh, that's when we had confirmation that Japan had you know landed on the moon and become the fifth country to do so.
0: Right. Well, Joel, thanks for staying up late for us and doing that reporting.
2: Yeah, no problem.
0: Cool. So the actual YouTube broadcast that Joel was referring to is available online. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks again for joining us, Joel. Thanks for having me on. When we come back, Tomoko Otake will explain to us what the point of Japan's mission to the moon was in the first place. Tomoko, thanks for coming back to Deep Dive. I know you're busy.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me.
0: So we just spoke to Joel about staying up all night to watch the lunar landing. And from what I understand, you were watching it too, yeah?
1: Yeah, all night.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What was your overall impression of the event? I know you cover science and health, but what was it like kind of watching history unfold live, even if it was at two in the morning?
1: It was pretty exciting, actually. Um, You don't get to cover something as historic as moon landing. And like Joel, I started watching the YouTube live broadcast on Friday night. Mm. And tension started rising during the 20 minutes of terror.
0: Right. Joel mentioned that.
1: That's right. So that was when the spacecraft had to clear a lot of horrors as it made its final descent. And in those 20 minutes, anything could have gone wrong. Mm. So there was no turning back once the final descent began. Mm. As a matter of fact, right before touchdown, one of the two engines got damaged and got lost. Right. And the craft ended up landing on the wrong position. Okay. But at that time, we didn't know what was going on.
0: Right. The feed cut out and you had to wait for two hours. Is that right?
1: Yeah. We were kept waiting (laughs) for two hours. Yeah. And the press conference started around 2.30 a.m. Okay. And that was two hours after the touchdown. Right. But JAXA, which is Japan's space agency, um, confirmed that it self-landed on the moon. But they also announced that the solar power panels weren't working properly. Okay, and as I watched the press conference, I was pretty surprised how the three JAXA officials appeared, and they looked pretty glum. Okay, uh, they weren't looking really happy, <laughs> <Right. Yeah. laughs> and. Almost like felt like their minds were elsewhere.
0: Yeah. JAXA has had kind of a few misses recently when it comes to their space program.
1: Right. So they must have been really nervous about the success of the mission. Mm. And when one of the officials was asked by a reporter how many points he would give to the performance of the lander, he said 60 points, um, barely passing a test. And that kind of like raised the question of was it really a success?
0: Right. He gave himself a C.
1: That's right. Yeah, Yeah. it was pretty strict, I thought. Okay. But it was no wonder, because the lander was relying on the battery and power was running low. And right during the news conference, they had decided to switch off the battery so they could save that power.
0: Right, so things kind of looked a bit dark.
1: Right. But luckily, five days later, they announced that they achieved one of the key goals, which is to land precisely where they wanted to. And as I heard this week, more than a week after the landing, the probe resumed operations because its solar cells started receiving the sunlight and started generating power. Mm. So it was a really interesting experience, feeling excited in stages as more information became available.
0: So let's break down the objectives of this mission for SLIM, which, to remind listeners, stands for Smart Lander for Investigating Moon.
1: Right. Right. So the SLIM mission has two main objectives. One is that JAXA wanted to achieve a soft or pinpoint landing on a site close to the Scioli crater. And they chose the spot, which is a sloping, rugged terrain on purpose because they thought it was scientifically interesting. Okay. And the other objective is that they want to show this lightweight and small lander system can work. Okay. Um, so SLIM, like its name, is smaller than the usual landers. And for comparison, the Indian Chandrian 3 lander, which landed on the moon on August 23rd last year, it weighed 1,700 kilograms at launch. So SLIM's about half the size, just 700 kilos at liftoff. Mm. But it got lighter as it used fuel on its way to the moon. Okay. And now it only weighs about 200 kilograms, which is the weight of just two people. Okay, yeah. So by making landers lighter and thus cheaper, Japan wants to fly more of these crafts to investigate the moon further. And a JAXA official told me that SLIM can make these missions more frequent and efficient. And that prepares us for future human missions to the moon. Okay. But... The pinpoint landing is what's really important here.
0: Right. Joel had mentioned that too, that the spacecraft landed within 100 meters of the crater rather than several kilometers away from it. What's the significance of this pinpoint landing success?
1: Well, uh, landing on the moon is really hard. Mm. It's almost 400,000 kilometers away. And it orbits Earth about 3,600 kilometers per hour. And both Earth and the moon are racing around the sun about 20 times that speed. Right. And the moon's gravity is one-sixth of the Earth's. But it still has gravity. So any spacecraft needs to be steered with engines. Mm. Also, the moon doesn't have any atmosphere. That means the landers have only the engines to control them. Or else they can be pulled by the moon's gravity and crash. Right. And remember... The surface of the moon is filled with boulders and rocks mm. that make landing a craft really difficult. Yeah. So until now you had to just land wherever you could, not where you wanted.
0: Right, okay.
1: And SLIM was equipped with two technologies to try to make the landing stage more precise. One has been called the smart eyes.
0: Okay, smart eyes.
1: Yes. So These are the cameras that capture images taken by the spacecraft as it flies over the moon and match them with high-resolution maps made from JAXA's previous Kaguya mission and NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft. Mm. And I spoke to Ken Ichikushiki, who is the SLIM's uh, sub-project manager at JAXA, And he said that the smart eyes give slim, real-time position and velocity information that the spacecraft can use to locate the landing site very precisely. Mm. So this helps it land safely. Right. And the other technology is the two-step landing technology, in which the spacecraft tilts forward from a vertical hovering position, lands on its main leg on the back, then tumbles forward further to land on its front legs before coming back down to find a stable position.
0: Right. This one is kind of hard to (laughs) describe, isn't it? Yeah. So it's coming down vertically and then at a certain height, uh, I don't know, maybe around 50 meters or something?
1: Even lower, I think. Even lower? Okay. It
0: starts to tilt um, at a 45-degree angle and you want to kind of land it on the back leg And then if you imagine a car coming down, (laughs) you would land on the back tire and then the front tire would hit and the back tire kind of comes up a bit. That's right. But then it comes back down. So then the car would be horizontal.
1: Right. It's kind of like falling on purpose. Okay. So this technology is to help it land on the slope of the shioli crater, which is at a six or seven degrees angle.
0: So, all these technologies, the smart eyes and the two step landing technology, kind of help the greater space travel community with allowing craft to land wherever they choose, right?
1: Right. Even on rugged terrain.
0: Even on rugged terrain, okay. And unfortunately, this didn't go perfectly to plan, correct?
1: Not quite. Okay. <laughs> so, the mission was a success and Japan managed to pinpoint landing. But, like I said, The craft seemed to get turned the wrong way when landing, which means the two-step sequence uh, didn't work either Okay, because they didn't land as hoped. Um, And because of that, uh, the solar panels it was using to power the battery were directed away from the sun.
0: Right. And so that's why they had to end up turning on this other battery.
1: That's right. Well, they didn't know what was going on, right? They just knew that the solar panels weren't working. Okay. And so it's kind of like maybe you suddenly panic when you see your phone at 12% or something. Yeah,
0: okay, I know that feeling. (laughs) Yeah,
1: but then just on Sunday or Monday, uh, JAXA reported that the panels were able to catch some sunlight and lunar observation has resumed.
0: Have we on Earth been able to see anything so far?
1: Yeah. Already we've been getting some images from the lander and the rovers that went with it. Mm -hmm. So they show the spacecraft kind of upside down on the surface.
0: Because of the problems they had landing.
1: Exactly. And it's surrounded by rocks that JAXA have been naming after dogs. Okay. So there we can see this rock landmark on the Shioli crater called Shiba Inu. There's one called Akita Inu and one called Bulldog and so on.
0: Okay, very cute. <laughs> so Japan, like we said, has had a few misses in its space journeys up till now. What kind of impact does this success have on the space industry in Japan as a whole?
1: Well, I think it's definitely going to spark more interest mm-hmm. um, among the ordinary people and also among businesses in Japan. Right. Um one thing that really created a buzz this time around was this, like, a uh, rover called Soraku. Okay. So this toy company called Tommy has this toy out, and they started selling, like, a tennis ball, like, rover, which is exactly like the rover that they put out on the moon. Okay. Actually, my husband is a, a toy collector, okay. and so he bought this toy. Oh, right. Yeah. And... um. Even though it's a toy, it's designed exactly like the actual rover released on the moon. Uh-huh. And it splits into like a two-wheel machine uh-huh. and it kind of like walks and moves. And you can use a smartphone to control it.
0: Right. and, take and Pictures of yeah, your kitchen or... <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, not as exciting <laughs> <laughs> as the lunar surface, but right. uh, yeah. And there's also this very simple video game online that people can play to get a better understanding of the mission.
0: Right. I actually spent the weekend playing that game. Yeah. Isn't
1: it fun? <laughs> it was
0: funner than I thought it would yeah, be. Yeah. And more informative. I think I really could understand the challenges they had in the two point landing technology. Um, and just kind of the overall mission on its own. It was it was a really good way to present it, and it was done in Japanese and English.
1: That's right. I think Jaxa did a really good job on this one. Mm. And so, like, I think a lot of people are really interested in the moon landing uh, missions and space in general.
0: Okay, so those are small steps. What about the uh, giant leap here?
1: Well, I would say being able to land softly where we want to on the moon. Mm. That will help in the quest to establish stations on the Moon. Mm. And a lot of this is done in service to the U.S. Artemis Program, which aims to establish a base on the Moon to assist future missions to Mars. Okay. So not only missions to Mars, but we could also gather resources from the Moon and send them back to Earth. Mm. And there's a lot of talk about this one resource in particular, It's called Helium 3. Okay. And that could be a major component in the creation of nuclear fusion technology. Right. That technology would give us almost unlimited power, in theory, at least.
0: Yeah, we did a podcast on that uh, last year uh, based on a lot of your work on nuclear fusion. That's right. Well, this is all fascinating stuff. Tomoko, thanks very much for coming back to Deep Dive. Uh, I look forward to reading more of your work on this in the future. Thanks, John. Hey, Gabriel. <laughs> hey,
3: Sean. Live long and prosper.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Um, so we've been talking to our colleagues uh, Joel Tanzi and Tomoko Otake about Japan's recent moon landing, and right. as Interesting as it is from a scientific point of view, or even the point of view of humanity and its achievements, I found an article of yours titled, Geopolitics in Space, Why Great Powers Are Scrambling for the Moon.
3: Uh, That's right, yes. I mean, politics is getting into everything these days.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, why don't you explain to us the premise of the article?
3: Well, so let's go back a little bit. The original space race was not entirely driven by science. Uh, As you might remember, it took place during the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Mm. And the idea behind it was that if one of these countries could get its people on the moon, then that would somehow show the effectiveness of the respective ideologies, meaning capitalism versus communism. Mm. Um, The thing is that once we got past that, uh, there wasn't too much we could find out about the moon. I mean, Science has come a long way in the past five to six decades. So now we see the moon in a very different light namely as a potential launch platform for interplanetary travel or deep space exploration. But more immediately, countries are seeing it as a source of critical resources.
0: So what kind of resources are we talking about?
3: Um, One of them is water ice, which would be crucial for any attempt to maintain a a manned presence on the moon. Hmm. Water ice is possibly present at the moon's poles, uh, specifically in in its uh, southern pole. Uh, And in addition to to being critical for life, this water could be separated into oxygen and hydrogen and used for fuel, which could... uh, eventually just you know fuel a, a spacecraft on the moon before heading somewhere else like mars for instance mm. uh this is important because uh, the moon has about a sixth of the earth's gravity that means that lunar launches would require something like 22 times less energy than launching from earth mm. and this would make the the moon an ideal pit stop for these type of deep, deep space missions mm. um, another important resource that scientists are pointing to is helium-3. So this element is scarce on Earth, but thought to be more abundant on the Moon. And it's considered to be a potential fuel for uh, future fusion reactors. Uh, this is key, as it would allow the Moon to serve, say, as, as a spaceport or as a logistics hub uh, for, for uh, uh, not only the, uh, the potential base camp there, but also uh, uh, future explorations and other missions.
0: Are there any like minerals um, well, yes, there are believed to be
3: trillions of dollars worth of metals and minerals, including rare earths. So this is this is where where we get into to the to the important part. Plans are being drawn up uh, to mine and extract these key minerals from the moon. This means that this fight over resources, uh, not only just helium-3 but also trillions of dollars worth of minerals, uh, is already playing a role. in in this new space race. It's basically, it's like saying that fighting over resources is once again the main driver of geopolitical competition, not here on Earth, but also on the moon. And if you take a look at what happened now with the Japan uh, uh, lunar moonshot, this precise landing technology that was demonstrated by JAXA, that is key because it enables countries and in the future also potentially private companies to land exactly where they need to Uh, not only to uh, resupply missions, but also to extract resources.
0: Right. And then instead of being between the United States and the Soviet Union, this time the race would be... Uh,
3: be Between the U.S. and its partners, uh, Japan being one of them, and uh, on the other hand, uh, China and Russia. Mm. Uh, But I think that this time is different. The the space race is different from the point of view that it's more than, than just about prestige and ideology. There are concrete deliverables. Um, If you consider the potential military, economic, and strategic advantages of utilizing the moon, then you can see why the stakes are so high in terms of securing prime real estate on the moon. Um, This is also why a a large number of countries and private companies have already launched lunar missions and are planning to launch many more in the coming decades. Mm. Uh, I mean, we're not talking just about uh, Japan, but there's also India, there's also China, there's the U.S., there's Russia, there's Israel. Uh, South Korea is also having a space program. Mm. Um, And it's also worth pointing out that uh, there are also non-governmental entities involved in this. We have, for instance, SpaceX, which is run by Elon Musk, and Blue Origin which is run by uh, Jeff Bezos. So I'm talking about the two billionaires here.
0: Mm. Wasn't there a treaty saying that single nations can't own a part of the moon, though?
3: Uh, you're, you're correct, Sean. So back in 1967, the, the United Nations established uh, the so-called Outer Space Treaty, which says that no nation can have sovereignty over the moon or any celestial body. However, the treaty is vague, especially when it comes to resource exploitation, And, as you know, countries are sometimes uh, known to ignore or find loopholes to reinterpret treaties, especially when key interests are at stake. Mm. Uh, Moreover, this specific treaty doesn't explicitly address the rights of individuals or private entities. Um, For this reason, in 2015... Um, Then-President Barack Obama signed a law that supported the right to own whatever you extract from the moon or asteroids, for instance.
0: Mm.
3: And a few dozen other countries have already adopted similar laws. So essentially what it means is that you can't own the moon, but you can own what you can find there. Mm. And you can possibly also secure the best spot to extract those resources. Um, And this is why so many countries are essentially just racing to secure that pole position.
0: So you can just walk into someone's camp and possibly take what they found if you start digging?
3: Uh, well, that's a gray zone there. Um, but uh, it's it's almost certain that companies and states that have invested billions of dollars into securing uh, prime real estate on the moon uh, and then use that to extract lunar resources would not be willing to give those uh, away. Mm. Um my personal view is that, given the lack of uh, international consensus, uh, there's still many unknowns out there. And uh, But overall, I would be very surprised if we don't see similar arrangements to those that we have on Earth. After all, this is very much Earthly geopolitics. Uh, the only difference here is that it's just being played out on the
0: Moon. Hmm. So Japan has signed up with the U.S. and supports the Artemis program, and this latest mission with the pinpoint landing achievement is said to help the Artemis program directly, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the Artemis program?
3: So, so, so first of all, the technology will be key for b- both for Artemis and the Gateway programs, but also for future space exploration in general. Um, th- th- this is why it's such a big deal. So Artemis is a U.S. led program that wants to return humans to the moon. And they want to establish a sustainable human presence there by the end of this decade. Okay. The basis of the program uh, are the Artemis Accords. Uh, these are a set of like non-binding principles that were launched in 2020. They are designed to guide space exploration in this century. Um, as of today, there are 34 signatories, and uh, we these include Japan, Australia. Canada, uh, Britain, and, uh, well, of course the U S, uh, uh, these were among the first signatories. Um, India, for instance, um, which, uh, landed on the moon, uh, late last year and they the fourth country to do so. They also recently joined the Artemis Accords, mm. but, um, at the same time, you also have a geopolitical rivalry here, for instance, China and Russia have not uh, signed on. Mm. And this is not only due to their competition with the United States, uh, on Earth, but also because Beijing originally objected to the U.S. creating this group outside of the U.N. Mm. Um, And another reason, but perhaps a more direct reason, is that in 2011, uh, the U.S. Congress passed a law that prohibited NASA from using federal funds to engage in direct and bilateral space cooperation with China. Mm. Um, That said, uh, many other countries haven't joined ARTHEMIS either. So uh, this raises questions as to how they might react to others getting an advantageous position on the moon. Right. So as a consequence of all of this, it is possible that Beijing and Moscow just come up with their own principles uh, on space exploration and resource extraction, and that those regulations then could challenge the principles underpinning the Artemis Accords. In worst-case scenario, what we could see would be a chaotic situation where there are many interpretations and potential disagreements over of, of what is permitted or not on the moon, and that could also escalate into conflict. That cannot be ruled out. There are right. already conflicts on Earth, so yeah, we cannot rule them out on the moon either.
0: I mean, is there any chance that we as the human race can try and work on all this together? <laughs> <laughs>
3: I, I would certainly hope so, but if we use history as a guide, uh, that is uh, not very likely I think uh, great powers uh, will always try to compete, and as long as there is no consensus on how to deal with space, and as long as there is there are disagreements uh, on Earth about how to treat each other, how to deal with each other, those disagreements will just simply be carried onto the moon, onto space, and everywhere else. I think that humans are just going to continue being humans, whether on the moon or on Earth. So, Yeah. I uh, unfortunately am a bit skeptical in that regard.
0: Right. Okay, Gabriel, thanks very much for uh, joining us again on Deep Dive.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: My thanks again to Gabriel, Tomoko, and Joel for joining us to talk about the moon landing on Deep Dive. Dave Cortez, producer extraordinaire, did you watch the uh, moon landing broadcast? No, I did not. Okay.
3: But uh, to be honest with you, after making this podcast, I learned so much
0: about it that I'm actually pretty excited about space, too. Right. Cool. Well, you know, a little piece of trivia that I couldn't work into any of the chats. Uh, So in Greek mythology, Artemis, the namesake of the Artemis program, is the goddess of wild animals, the hunt, childbirth and chastity. And she was the twin sister of Apollo, who provided the name for the U.S. space program that originally brought astronauts to the moon in 1969. That was 55 years ago this year.
3: Oh, that's pretty cool trivia. I'm going to whip that out next time I can at a dinner party or something.
0: Yeah, hey, if we are not providers of dinner party topics, then what are we? (laughs) (laughs) Elsewhere in the news, February 1st marks one month since the powerful New Year's Day earthquake that hit central Japan. The magnitude 7.6 quake struck the Noto Peninsula particularly hard, leaving at least 238 people dead and close to 10,000 people remain in evacuation shelters. A month on, it is reported that around 40,000 households are still without water, as the infrastructure of pipes and purification systems, which were already pretty old, suffered extensive damage. The situation is better on the electricity front, though not all the way back to normal. The number of households without electricity, which was 40,000, is now set to be around 2,400. For more on the situation, visit JapanTimes.co.jp. Deep Dive from the Japan Times is produced by Dave Cortez. Our outgoing song is by Oscar Boyd, and the theme music is by Japanese musician Forl. i I'm Sean McKenna, otsukaresama.